Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. A new investigation from the Riverfront Times reports that roughly three inmates in Missouri prisons have been dying every week for the past five months, an alarming rate even more disturbing because it coincides with a strict new mail policy intended to stop drugs such as fentanyl and synthetic marijuana from getting into state corrections facilities. The new mail policy, which took effect July 1st, bans inmates from receiving physical mail. Instead, the mail is routed to Florida, where it is scanned and an electronic copy is sent to inmates on their tablet devices. In the five months prior to July 1st, 48 inmates died in Missouri prison custody. But there have been 60 deaths in the five months since. Not all the deaths are from overdoses, but a cursory look at who is dying while incarcerated shows that many of these deaths can't be easily attributed to natural causes. Seven inmates in the prison in Licking died within a month of each other this fall. Their average age was 41. Three young men, two in their 30s and one in his 20s, died within a week of each other at the prison in the Bon Terre in October. Of the 10 men who passed away in a Missouri prison that month, the average age was around 45, according to Missouri Department of Corrections records. One current MODOC inmate spoke to the RFT on the condition of anonymity for fear of retribution from prison staff. He said that despite being incarcerated at Ozark Correctional Center, a facility focused on helping inmates with alcohol and substance abuse issues, drugs are pouring in. In an email to the RFT, MODOC spokeswoman Karen Pojman stressed that the issue of drug overdose is by no means exclusive to prisons, and that issues of drugs in prisons can't be separated from the wider epidemic. It's been something of an open secret among those who pay attention to MODOC, that with physical mail shut down and inmates' visitors subject to searches, drugs are primarily getting in via prison staff. Both activists who keep a close watch on MODOC, as well as the director of the Missouri Correction Officers Union, have previously shown this to be true. The Berks County Immigrant Detention Center in Pennsylvania will close early in the new year. Its closure has been the dream of legions of activists and protesters who have long criticised the facility as barbaric. The federal government informed local leaders that it was ending its contract with the county as of January 31st. ICE officials in Philadelphia said they were gathering information about the closure and would provide details soon. The government may have just finally made the right decision to end immigration detention in Berks County, said lawyer Bridget Cambria who has long fought for immigrants held there as executive director of ALDIA, the People's Justice Centre in Reading. This is a significant win for the shutdown Berks Coalition and the direct result of years of committed organising. A trio of independent oversight reports on conditions in Washington state prisons were drafted more than a year ago, but their findings still haven't been released. The results of these state investigations, paid for with tax dollars, are so secret, in fact, that when copies of the Washington Office of Corrections Ombuds reports were obtained by media outlet Crosscut via a public records request, they were almost completely redacted, meaning it is impossible to know what information they contain. We only know the topics of the investigations. 
One report reviews the use of emergency restraints on incarcerated people. Another examines medical accommodations for those inside, where inadequate health care can be a life or death concern. The third report looks at the use of disciplinary programs inside the correctional facilities. The three reports are among seven such documents that were shelved after Governor Jay Inslee in November 2021 appointed one of his own senior advisors to temporarily lead the small agency. The office is tasked with handling complaints by incarcerated people and shining a light on what goes on inside Washington's 12 prisons. We're pleased to share the first part of an interview between Anne Gray Fisher and Mecole Siegel. Fisher's powerful first book, The Streets Belong to Us, was published earlier in 2022 and is an account of gender and sexuality's crucial role in the history and exercise of police power. In this conversation, Fisher and Siegel discuss the context of the book and its relationship to wider abolitionist research. They also work through the relationship between vice policing, aimed primarily at women's bodies, and race, which allowed wide swaths of black neighborhoods to be treated as red light districts and subject to intensified police surveillance and violence. Here they are. I'm Nicole Siegel. I'm here with Anne Gray Fisher to talk about her incredibly beautiful beat book, to talk about her incredibly beautiful book, The Streets Belong to Us. Sex, Race, and Police Power, From Segregation to Gentrification, which was just published this year by the University of North Carolina Press. And Annie, it's such a pleasure to have you on KiteLine. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Um, KiteLine is such a beautiful community. The work y'all are doing um, is so powerful. Um, and I remember all the hard work y'all were doing when I lived in Bloomington for a year, and it's really such a privilege and a treat to be in conversation with you today. Thank you so much. Would you start out by introducing yourself for our KiteLine listeners? Yes, I am an assistant professor of U.S. gender history at the University of Texas at Dallas. At one point, you had a Bloomington moment. You were in town with us working for, was it the American Historical Review? It was the Journal of American History, and I also taught classes at IU. Yeah. So I just want to start out by saying that I absolutely love this book. I love everything about it. I love how incredibly beautiful the storytelling flows, how deep the empirical base is. Your research is amazing. It's so ambitious in scope. You talk about cities all over the country. You talk about the entire 20th century. And you have also this incredibly um, capacious theoretical perspective on the relationship of race and gender. And it's so rare to have a book of history that really gets the theoretical um, grasp of the of the concepts that it's wrestling with as beautifully as this book does. I think it's rare and wonderful. And even though KiteLine listeners are going to hear about it now for a little while, I just strongly recommend that everybody go out and read it for themselves because uh, it's really worth the, the ink and paper. Let's begin in a little bit of um, the, the part of the book that takes up a sort of prehistory to what you're talking about. 
the book is really about the 20th century, but you spend a little bit of time setting the reader up by talking about the turn of the 19th to the 20th century. And let me first ask you um, about that period. What was white slavery? When did white slavery become an object of moral reform and why? And how did the paranoia around it lead to the construction of a carceral system focused on policing black women? Yeah, thank you so much for starting out with this really important question. The book itself, right, is a history of sexual policing or the way that women are targeted, harassed, and arrested by police based on their bodies, right, their physical presence on city streets. <clears throat> and you really can't talk about a history of sexual policing or prostitution law enforcement without going to the late 1800s, early 1900s and talk about this white slavery campaign. It's not a coincidence that the term white slavery develops after the end of the Civil War and Reconstruction. So at the conclusion, right, of this massive restructuring of Black citizenship and Black rights in the U.S., a massive movement rises up among um, particularly middle-class white women, um, leading, but leading middle-class white men and many other, and to a in in a distinct way, middle-class Black reformers around a moral panic known as white slavery. The racial or racist politics of white slavery were imprinted on the very term. The idea behind white slavery is that young, mostly white, uh, US-born women um, are moving to these uh, incre rapidly increasing cities um, in search of employment, and they are vulnerable to uh, sexual predation, mostly by men of color. These could be immigrants, Jewish men, Black men, uh, men of Asian descent, right? They are, um, they are vulnerable to coercion and other forms of sexual predation, where they will be trafficked into um, sexual slavery. And it's really important, the race, the racist dimensions of the white slavery story are so important because they shunt into obscurity what had been an anti-slavery argument, right? That black women under the legal regime of, of enslavement were vulnerable to white enslavers' sexual predations. That narrative completely flips after the Civil War, after Reconstruction, through the white slavery narrative, that um, Black women are no longer vulnerable to sexual predation in the ways that white women are. Um, and moreover, um, Black women, Black womanhood is so um, associated with racist ideas of sexual deviance or sexual degradation that they aren't really considered worthy of the rescue work that is at the heart of the white slavery campaigns. Um, so we start in the, the story starts in, at the turn of the 20th century with a massive, and I cannot tell you, you know, the, the print culture, the films, um, journalism, 
a huge, like a, one of the biggest moral reform campaigns that the century, new century has yet seen around white slavery. Um, that it's really important to recognize that this campaign is rooted in um, efforts to rehabilitate white womanhood, to protect and save white womanhood. And that becomes a really key racist engine of the strategies and the responses to this panic around sex trafficking or sex slavery. It's so interesting and just <clears throat> thinking about the ways that sex trafficking functions today as a moral panic, which obscures the way racial capitalism organizes the labor of the most vulnerable workers. It really has its roots in these panics around white slavery and human trafficking at the turn to the 20th century, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, we don't often like to draw straight lines in history, but if I were to draw yeah. a straight line, it would be from the white slavery campaigns of the of the early 20th century and the sex trafficking narratives that we see today. And what's unique about the white slavery campaign is how, you know, there were certainly concerns about so-called fallen women in throughout the 19th century, what makes the white slavery campaign unique is this uh, specific progressive era moral reform ideology that the state should be deployed to protect white womanhood from these, you know, uh, predators of color, male predators of color. Mm -hmm. And so what makes white slavery unique in this moment is that many of the moral reformers are calling on the state, calling on police departments and demanding action on behalf of these white women. Mm -hmm. And it's by activating the state in that unique way that we start to see the carceral buildup start in the 20th century. Now, you know, and this is one of the key arcs that I talk about in my book, this carceral apparatus. So, you know, moral reformers will probably talk about the, the urban campaigns that these anti-white slavery moral reformers undertake. But, you know, it really starts with um, making demands on police departments, creating new laws that actually expand the definition of prostitution to really include any kind of sexual promiscuity, which in the early 20th century could mean simply an unescorted woman walking um, by herself down the street or with a man who's not her you know, relative, not a father or brother or husband. We see that these uh, demands on police to enforce white women's purity will actually, in, in the name of their own protection, will actually become uh, a muscular and robust structure of violence targeting black women across the 20th century. It's just so interesting. Yeah. It's, you really do a great job of pointing out how moral reform in this period yoked the state into the policing of morality through sexuality. And that is something that we sometimes assume to have been eternal, you know, or to have been the case for all of US history. 
And it, it just wasn't. You you locate the beginning of it in this period of the late 19th, early 20th century, and you connect it to changes in the status of policing. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you about that a little bit later. Right now, I want to ask you to set the scene a little bit more by talking about um, how U.S. cities were changing in this early period, this this period just before you pick up the narrative. You know, your 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 subtitle, "Sex, Race, and Police Power: From Segregation to Gentrification," focuses on these two urban phenomena, segregation and gentrification, and those are things that you follow and you talk about their importance to race and gender throughout the 20th century. So I expect to hear a little bit about that from you as you, as you answer this question about US cities, how they, how they changed at the end of the 19th century and beginning of the 20th, and in particular, where the red light districts were. Where were red light districts in older US cities and where were they after the turn of the century? Yeah, so you know, as you pointed out, I'm trying to make, I'm, I'm trying to show the work of policing, as you say, the violence work, which is a brilliant term that you've gifted the profession, Nicole, and gifted readers, that the, the violence work of sexual policing is uh, threefold, at least. And I'm focusing on three things in the book, right? First, that produces the meanings of white and Black womanhood. It produces the meanings of who is legal and who is not legal on city streets, right? Whose physical presence is a crime. Um, the, the second thing that uh, sexual policing does is, is it actually enriches and expands police authority itself. And then, as you say, there's the third piece, which is how sexual policing is actively shaping um, the racist and sexist landscape of cities themselves, whether that means um, racist segregation, or whether that means uh, displacement, banishment in order to profit from, uh, in order to extract greater profit from the land itself in the process of gentrification. So that, that meant that, you know, in, in conjunction with thinking about white slavery, I, I also needed to look at what was happening um, in the cities themselves. And it's because uh, anti-white slavery or moral reformers saw a connection between um, sex trafficking, the sex trafficking that they were alarmed about, um, and red light districts, which were, um, for the most part, deliberately designed and established zones, typically located near bordering a central business district or another male-dominated uh, district of the city. Red light districts were kaleidoscopes of social interaction. They, some would be interracial, some would be explicitly uh, whites only, but it was white men who had exclusive access throughout red light districts. Um, and for the white anti-white slavery moral reformers, these red light districts were clear signs of um, of moral decay, of moral endangerment, particularly in particularly uh, for white women, and threats to democracy itself. So they were determined to abolish red light districts. And this campaign, which many historians say was successful, 
that by prohibition, by the 1920s, historians say that the sort of old-timey red light districts that that we might associate with the with the 1800s were abolished nationwide because of the anti-white slavery moral reform campaigns. But that's not actually what happened. What happened was that through the enormous pressure that moral reformers put on police and politicians to quote unquote clean up or abolish red light districts, the sort of tolerated or permitted so-called vice in cities moved into neighborhoods that were predominantly Black. And this is not to say, of course, that Black neighborhoods did not have vice districts prior to this period in the first few decades of the 1900s, but it is to say that um, Black neighborhoods were not seen by the white authorities, both police authorities and politicians in power. Black neighborhoods were not seen as neighborhoods. Uh, they were seen as sites of deviance and criminality. And there was very little white protest um, from the middle-class reformers when um, police sort of actively pushed a variety of either sexual commerce or gambling or later after prohibition, uh, illegal alcohol consumption, sales and consumption, pushed that more and more into neighborhoods that were rapidly becoming more racially segregated. It's just, it, it's fascinating to think about the history of red light districts um, as one of the incredibly concrete ways that the state shapes urban landscapes to govern race and gender. And that's one thing that you show really beautifully. And as you just mentioned, you talk about the way this kind of legal and economic shaping of space creates the meanings of black and white womanhood in relation uh, in relation to that legal and economic structuring structuring and to each other to to those those categories in relation to each other uh, and that's one of the things that the book shows really deftly so I'm going to start in a minute to ask you to tell the, the history that you tell in the book, but um, it's going to involve you using a couple terms that I think are worth thinking through before we get started. So before we go any further, let's get some terms in place. Um, first of all, in the book, you use both prostitution and sex work in different moments. So what's the difference between the two and when do you prefer each of those terms? Um, what does sexually profiled mean and why do you use that term? And then finally, what is sexual policing, which is an absolute crucial term throughout the book? And then have I missed anything? What other terms do you think are important for the rest of our discussion? Well, I'm hoping that those are all the terms we need in play, but I will keep, if, if I say something that I think needs definition, or if you think needs definition, we can do that. Um, but I'm grateful that you asked about the distinction between prostitution laws and sex work. So throughout the book, when I talk about prostitution laws, it's to um, both to talk about what the police are actively enforcing. I mean, it's a huge um, 
site of political debate and political point scoring. <laughs> and so prostitution is very often sort of like the dominant word that folks will use throughout the, you know, the modern 20th century, say after the 20s, um, to talk about this, you know, what they would characterize as very troubling practice. But the thing is, is that prostitution laws define prostitution as the exchange of, you know, money or some other good for a sexual act. The thing is, is that what I found in my research is that when police are engaging in a prostitution arrest, they are not necessarily, they are absolutely not witnessing a transaction taking place. Usually they are deploying their own discretion with it, which itself is completely structured by their own racist and sexist worldviews about uh, who is criminal, who is deviant, right? And that might change over time. Um, for example, in the earlier period, uh, like I said, a white woman seen with a black man or a white woman um, walking unescorted downtown or in another male dominated part of the city would absolutely be a cause for police action. So prostitution laws itself are super plastic and not really enforced based on what the police, the kinds of transactions that we might imagine police are seeing and acting on. As I said, you know, by the time we get to 1930, the moral reformers have so effectively expanded the uh, definition of prostitution that police could make a, um, a totally legitimate, right, uh, uncontested arrest of a woman based entirely on her physical presence on city streets. Promiscuity itself was a cause for arrest or presumed promiscuity was itself a cause for arrest. So really you have, by, the, by 1930, you have, and I forget how many states now, but there's a majority of states in the US have laws on the books that criminalize a woman for engaging in um, a sexual act with someone she's not married to with or without hire is the legal term in that case, right? So whether or not it actually involves some sort of cash payment or monetary payment, it's criminal if it's outside of marriage. Um, so when I say prostitution laws, I'm speaking to this uh, really kind of vague and hazy, very broad definition of um, of sexual practice of criminal sexual practices that would not actually be sex work, right? That is not actually the the labor of selling a sexual act in exchange, you know, as a transaction in exchange for uh, goods or money. So one other thing I'll say is that prostitution laws, when I talk about them, I'm usually speaking to a broad rubric of morals laws like disorderly conduct, loitering, lewd and lascivious behavior, common night walking. There's this whole raft of laws that police could use in order to do their prostitution law enforcement on other women, right? With or without any real evidence that a woman has engaged in a so-called criminal act. This has been KiteLine. 
thank you to everyone who helped with this episode. If you want to support our work, please visit patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. You can also find us on all social media platforms. You can hear our archive of over 300 episodes at kitelineradio.org. Please reach out if you have a news item we should cover, if you want to volunteer, or just to tell your story. Email us at kiteline at wfhb.org or send us a letter at kiteline, care of WFHB, 108 West 4th Street, Bloomington, Indiana, 47404. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every week for more stories, news, and insights on the prison system. Thank you for listening. <laughs>